Welcome to The Well Podcast, where we post the audio messages for our Sunday sermons. For more information about us and how to get further connected, feel free to visit our website at thewellaustin.com. Hi, Well family. My name is Amanda. Um, I am a covenant member here at The Well. Um, my husband and our two little boys uh, serve on the welcome team, which is why you sometimes get high-fived by a two-year-old on your way in. Um, and we were a part of the recently completed uh, Goer Missional community, and so we're figuring out a new community group now. Today I'm going to be reading from Ezra 4. Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers' houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do, and we've been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of fathers' houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God. But we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped, and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. This is the word of the Lord. What's up, y'all? How are we? We cool? Good, good. Um, Hey, week four in our uh, Ezra series talking about rebuilding. And um, if you haven't been with us, let me go ahead and give a quick recap as to where we've been so that the story that we're reading today uh, actually makes a little bit of coherent sense. And so, uh, first of all, uh, as a church, we feel like the Lord has been telling us that we are about to enter into a season of rebuilding. Um, Last year, we felt like God was calling us to replant as a church body. And that means that there's going to be different people and different ministries. We're literally in a different location. Like different is the idea of replanting, but rebuilding in our minds are like, hey, okay, now that we kind of got our people and we kind of got our place and we kind of like, how do we begin to build with who and what God has brought to us? And so journeying through Ezra, we see a lot of similarities as they are also rebuilding in some very unique ways. And we feel that that parallels us as a church really clearly. And now at this point in the book of Ezra, where we're at is they've recently finished laying the foundation of the temple. That was last week. And so one of the biggest things that they were called to do in their rebuilding process was to reestablish the worship of Israel. And so you see a call out of uh, Persia, out of Babylon, and that's in chapter one. And they're thinking about the generations ahead of them. In week two, we talk about how all of us are in this together. It's the sacrifices of many that actually build up the body of Christ. Last week, we looked at how they were attached to their history and how they were completing what the word of the Lord had spoken. And that leads us into today. Um, Now, what we have, once again, last week was the finishing of the laying of the foundation of the temple. That was a significant moment in their redemptive history. And as soon as significant steps, steps in redemption happens, guess what happens right after that? Trouble pops up. 
right? And let me tell you something, like very clearly, not just in this text, but every single time a significant moment of redemption happens in your life, you better believe that trouble is right at the door. That collectively, this will be true for us as a church individually. This will always be true for you. The enemy does not like any form of light, John chapter 3 would tell us. So every time you're in the midst of redemption, every time you see God moving in your life in powerful ways, you better believe that evil and darkness is tailing right behind that light. We got to know that as we rebuild. And so before diving in, I want us to know that this is a sermon on opposition. It is not a sermon on suffering, although opposition does often bring about suffering. But knowing that as you do work for the Lord, that you will meet opposition, that is important for us to remember. In fact, if we're to keep the right perspective on rebuilding, which was the sermon from last week, then we have to understand that opposition is going to come. And if we understand that, that will help us to endure. Okay, quick example, so you don't check out on me before the sermon even starts. Uh, Marriage is a good thing, right? Yes, amen. Somebody just got married. Come on. Or finna get married, right? (laughs) Marriage is from God. The scriptures say that. And so if you get married, since that is a good thing, then you better believe that opposition is going to come within your marriage because if marriage is a gift of God, then guess what the enemy is going to try to destroy? Your marriage, right? Like serving the church is a good thing. Friendship is a good and a godly thing and a gift from God. Why do you think your friendships are under such hot hop opposition at times? Like, like our sanctification is a good thing. Your devotional times, your quiet times are a good thing, which is why every time you go to pray, there's 5,000 other things on your mind. Any good thing that God wants us to participate in, you gotta believe that opposition is also right at the door. And if we understand that, and if we're ready for it, and if we know how to overcome it, then I think we'll be able to endure opposition well. Every time you try to push back darkness, you got to believe darkness is going to push back. All right? And so let's dive in with that context. Uh, I want to start off with a really promising uh, intro into the sermon. Uh, There are very few passages in Scripture that are more confusing than this passage, Uh, I know some passages carry forth some deeper theological weight and confusion, but the textual confusion that is here is really, really uh, intense. And so I've been confused about half of the week and then unsure about half of the week. Great start, right? Uh, Here's why. First of all, the people that we're discussing, you see there in verse one, they are called adversaries. Uh, I'll tell you why this is both true, but also why it's confusing here in a second. Secondly, do you remember the point I made last week about them being called Israelites linking their past with their present? Well, now only two tribes are mentioned, Judah and Benjamin, really separating them from the rest of Israel, likely because of who these adversaries were but we'll talk about that in a second as well. They're also called exiles. Remember before they were called Israelites, but now all of a sudden it looks like we're relinking them with their painful past, sort of countering the entire sermon from last week, right? Like all of chapter three now seems to be immediately from verse one kind of thrown into a flux. In fact, it says here that they were building a temple versus the temple, 
The only time that phrase a temple is used is in verse one and three. And then when Cyrus says that he is going to build a temple to Yahweh, but we know that Cyrus was not a Yahweh follower, the rest of the time it is called the temple. And so that you don't think I'm just making a random point, it's called the temple 28 times in the book of Ezra alone. We ain't even talking about Nehemiah here, right? And so it's confusing what's happening here, but uh, it will get stranger as we continue, but I'm bringing this up intentionally, the complexity of the passage, because today we are talking about opposition, and I believe that opposition is complex. It's hard to understand. It's even hard to recognize and endure. In fact, I believe that opposition is confusing for most of us. Hold on to that thought throughout this sermon. We're going to circle around this idea that opposition, it is confusing. Now, notice these adversaries, they came to Zerubbabel. He's the pseudo-king leader at this moment. And what, the, what do they say there in verse 2? They're like, hey, fam, like, let us build with you, right? Like, we want to build. In fact, we've been offering to God, even before you exiles came back, that here in this land seems really kind, seems really genuine. In fact, so far, what we see in the book of Ezra is that anybody who wants to partake in this rebuilding process, they are welcomed in. It's like, hey, come rebuild with us. Let us leave Babylon. Let us begin to build on the house of God. But Zerubbabel and Jeshua and them old heads that were just weeping at the foundation of the temple last week, they're like, man, heck no. Bums, right? Like, like they come at them strong, y'all. Like, you ain't nothing. You have no part in us, right? You know they had some neck action in that mug, right? Like, this is our God. It's like, dang, chill, son, right? And then they mask their lack of a welcome underneath the fact that the king of Persia sent them. Like, for real? You're like blaming a foreign king? What is happening here? Okay. Quick Bible history background to kind of understand. Stick with me here because it's really important for us to understand what's happening in this context. These adversaries are familiar foes. In the nation of Israel, what happened was under David, you had this uniting of all the 12 tribes of Israel. Solomon was in his son. He reigned. After Solomon's reign, though, there was a civil war and it split into a northern tribe and a southern tribe. The northern tribe was typically called Israel. The southern tribe was typically called Judah, hence where you get the name Jewish from, because this was the southern tribe. This was just made up of Judah and Benjamin. That was all. Well, what happened was the northern tribe, they were bugging their whole time, all right? And they started worshiping false gods right away, practicing syncretism, which means you're trying to worship two gods at the same time. Really important. We'll get back to that in a little bit. But here they are worshiping, and what happens is, is God keeps warning them, if you do not follow me, you are going to go into captivity. Prophet after prophet comes, they never listen to the word of Yahweh, and they end up taken, being taken captive by Assyria. Now what the Assyrians did was they took all these Israelites captive, and then they sent some Assyrians into what used to be the nation of Israel. 
Israel, but also resent some of the Israelites there as well, kind of blending the Assyrian religion and the Israeli religion together. Judah kind of remained faithful for a while, but then they started bugging too, because you know how we get as humans, right? And then they started, uh, they got taken captive by Babylon. Babylon then gets conquered by Persia. Now this is where we are in this moment of history. But they were only there for 70 years, versus Israel with Assyria was there for like centuries even, before they all got sent back. So uh, Judah stayed pretty pure, if you will, in the process. So they get sent back in into this context. Now, this is where we are now. These people that were from Assyria and Israel kind of blended together, started to make their worship spot there in Israel. And what we call those people that are a mixture of Assyrians and Israelites, we call them Samaritans. Now, if you're familiar with the New Testament, you know that the Samaritans were a people that the Jews, Judah, actually really hated. And what you see is that the opposition between Judah and Samaria, who's kind of Assyria and kind of Israel, it starts right here in Ezra chapter 4, about 400 years before Jesus comes. Now, this makes this passage actually that much more confusing because it says that they've been living in Jerusalem since the exile. Now, we know many of them, they're not Jewish in their original origin, But some of them are Jewish, but they've also been practicing the syncretism pretty clearly. And so you get just this confusion in this passage. In 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 33, if you are interested in biblical history, 2 Kings 17 is a great chapter on this very passage. But it says this to summarize what's happening here in Ezra 4. In verse 33, it says... So they feared the Lord. This is the Samaritans, the Assyrians. They feared the Lord, but also served their own gods after the manner of the nations from among whom they had been carried away. So when they say we've been sacrificing to Yahweh, they're not just blowing smoke. They they literally have been, but also they've been sacrificing to their own foreign gods as well. So now this request, it feels a little bit genuine and helpful, like they want to help rebuild. In fact, the really interesting thing to throw even more confusion, stick with me, it's all important, it all connects. It even throw more confusion is that in Ezra chapter one, remember we said these prophets were prophesying that Israel would come back and that they would rebuild the temple. So they're listening to the prophets and they're doing it. Those same prophets also prophesied that the nations would come in and be a part of this rebuilding process. And so here we have the nations wanting to come and they're like, yeah, no, y'all ain't welcome here. Confusing. And yet here we see these promises not being followed. But then the chapter goes on and you get these Samaritans very clear ill motives. Like they throw mad shade at the people of Judah and they turn into some major haters throughout chapter four and the rest of the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. Like they're threatening them, they lie about them, they burn down their walls, like they act in wild. In fact, in verse six, if you wanna look at it real quick, it says that they wrote a letter that had some uh, 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 adversary, like an adversarial letter. Well, that word there is actually the word Satan, which is where we get the word Satan. What it says is they wrote a Satan to the foreign king. There's many other words they could have used. They intentionally used a demonic word to talk about what they were doing. Like very clearly, these dudes did not have fully pure hearts. 
Now, here's what makes this all the more confusing. Like, you, like I'm just throwing all this in here, right? Like, like, do you know what sent Israel into exile in the first place? Syncretism. It was the worship of two gods at the same time. So these leaders are right in rejecting them because they don't want to fall into the same practices. And yet the prophets promised that the nations would come in. This is so confusing. So they're building fences to try to protect, but it seems like they're building it with such ferocity that they're perhaps keeping out the very people that God wants them to be brought in. Like on and on and on it goes. It is messy, it is confusing, and here's where all of this wraps together. It's that opposition is always confusing. Sin is always messy and it's always confusing, y'all. It is so rare that you see somebody walking in sin or sin is done to you and it's just like, it makes total sense. Right? Like, no, like, it's always confusing. Now, because it's confusing, you may think, all right, well, chapter five, let's go on to that, right? But y'all, listen, as you linger in the word of God, I believe there's so much fruit. There is so much fruit. The more you linger in the Bible, the more the Bible will bear its fruit to you. And so I pray that we would even linger a little bit in this confusion this morning and let that breed fruit into our souls. The text is confusing for multiple reasons. Opposition always is, first of all, right? Like it's very rare that Satan throws something in your path that is very clear opposition and really easy to overcome. Like very few of us are gonna walk out of here today and hear the lie of the enemy speak into our heads and say, you should go murder a few people today. And we're like, dog, you know what? That's a good idea, yo, right? Like, no, like opposition is always subtle. It is a snake in the garden. Did God really say this? And it's confusing. And at times we do not endure opposition because we don't even realize that we're being opposed. Like, I wish some of y'all caught that, right? Like, like notice, they say, we've been sacrificing to God too. Do you see that in this text? Like creating confusion. It is not immediately clear what is happening. They say, we want to help rebuild, even though there's some clear selfish motivation if you read the rest of Ezra and Nehemiah. Hannah Harrington, she's a biblical scholar and a commentator, my favorite one for Ezra and Nehemiah. She says this about this passage. She says, they were no doubt impressed with the political clout and the financial aid that the settlers had gained from the authorization of the Persian emperor, and they recognized the value of colluding with them. Yeah, duh, right? These Israelites come back with stacks, y'all, like bags, right? Like they're building with all of Persia's gold. So it kind of makes sense to partner with them. And I believe that all of this confusion and the kind of, we want to partner with you, but we're still going to worship our other gods. And and this confusion, the sneaky, subtle, snaky works of the enemy, the same thing happens to us today. Like many people are trying to tie us to their plans and they say that they are worshiping God. But what you and I can fail to see is that yes, though there are traces of God in them, there are also traces of Baal in them and you cannot serve two masters. And so come join this political party and vote this way because we serve Christ. And so Jesus is in their tongues, but Baal is in their bellies. Right? Like if if you don't affirm this, then you do not love people. Clearly you hate if you are not affirming, you are not like Jesus, like, like for real. 
Like we can't love and yet have like some theological, like, like holiness isn't that critical. Stop taking yourself too seriously. Jesus on tongue, bail in belly. Opposition can be confusing and subtle and sneaky and snaky. And here is what this story sets us up for, is that at times opposition is an onslaught, but at times it's confusing because it's so subtle. It's so hard to catch. You don't realize you're being opposed until you're swimming in the pits with the snakes. Like we need to recognize the reality. And friend, family, like whenever you seek to do something for the Lord, there is going to be opposition. Always. At times, it comes from those on the outside. At times, it comes from the enemy the demonic realm, at times it comes from friendly fire, which is the kind that tends to hurt the most, but there will always be opposition. Whenever you try to push back darkness, it is going to push back. Notice the progression even of the opposition here and notice how this applies to our own spiritual lives, how it can apply to our church as we rebuild over and over and over again. It started with trickery and confusion, like we just mentioned, right? But then look at verse five and six, it upgraded to discouragement. All of a sudden they start trying to discourage the people. In fact, that word discouraged, I put it in brackets, can be translated to weaken the hands, to relax them or to quiet them. Shh, about your love for Christ and your biblical convictions and your discouragement. This is often how opposition works in our life once again. But then it doesn't just stop there. They begin to try to bribe them and then to try to frustrate them, which that word frustrate can also be translated as divide. And Satan does the same thing to you. He tries to trick you. And if you're not fooled by that, then he tries to discourage you. And if you endure, then he starts to try to create division from others, which is why Paul all throughout the New Testament says that division within the church is the greatest threat of spiritual warfare in our lives because he's trying to divide so that he can conquer. This is how opposition tends to work. It's why in your marriage, you're supposed to be one and yet you feel this division over and over. Do you not see the enemy is trying to destroy you, right? Like this is the work of, it is the intensification of the opposition from the enemy to try to bring fire from friendly faces. Opposition keeps coming at different angles, that can be confusing, that can be disorienting, right? Now notice, the Israelites didn't succumb to the opposition here, yet the opposition didn't go away. It didn't happen just for days or for weeks. It spanned kings, like, like generations, that means. In other words, faithfulness to God does not automatically equal freedom from struggle. In fact, often opposition comes specifically because you're trying to be faithful to God. And it goes from Cyrus to Darius to uh, Azarus, that's Esther's man in the book of uh, Esther. And then sneak a look at verse seven. It even goes into the next kings, four kings. Opposition kept coming generation after generation, the same sorts of opposition. So not only is opposition confusing, but opposition can also feel constant, y'all, over and over and over again. And unfortunately, 
What happened was, because it was confusing, and because it was subtle, and because it was constant, opposition ended up winning in this chapter. In verse 24, though God had clearly told them to rebuild, verse 24 tells us they stopped. That's unfortunate. Because I think what this story is showing us is that the enemy of opposition often has more endurance to oppress than the worker of righteousness has faithfulness to endure. Because by the end of all this opposition, the work stops. Opposition won. And this is how Satan and our flesh often get us to stop rebuilding our lives on Christ and to stop rebuilding the church of God. Listen, it doesn't happen in this one big swooping moment and instance. It's the small words, the small attacks, it's the small cuts over and over and over and over again that frustrate and that weary our hands and that get us to drop the sword. And I think one of the reasons that we don't endure is because we don't realize just the the consistent nature of opposition. And we don't endure because we don't expect to meet opposition in those sorts of ways. We don't anticipate the opposition towards us building God's kingdom and towards us building our lives on Christ. And so because we have bad expectation, we tend to not endure. When you don't expect it to come, you're gonna get blindsided by it and it's gonna be really hard to endure it. Listen, in verses, or, uh, chapter four, verse six through 23, we're skipping that section, not because it's not important, because it just says the same thing over and over and over again. This story is telling us how they were oppressed, but Ezra is the one writing this book and he writes with some hindsight. He's about 70 years after uh, Zerubbabel, where we are right now. And he talks about how throughout all these kings, the same sort of opposition came and it happened over and over again. And so, so literally it's the same story over and over, which is further evidence that every Christian who is trying to honor and serve God will meet persecution and struggle in every single generation, y'all. Listen, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised, right, if fiery trial is coming, like when it comes upon you to test you, as if something strange were happening to you. It ain't strange, right? Like, but often we are surprised, and then we get smacked in the face with darkness and we stop building because we're confused as to why we're suffering. But we forget that you and I are on enemy territory right now until Jesus decides to return. And if you're on enemy territory, what makes you think that you're not gonna get smacked in the face a few times, right? Opposition is going to come. We have to expect it. We have to believe that it is coming. And part of the reason that we are confused is because our expectations are misaligned. Y'all, there's no formula to opposition. That's why it's hard for us. It's because we're trying to figure out a snake and the movements of a snake are so hard to predict and we're trying to figure out why we're suffering and our eyes are often on opposition rather than on glory who we can know. Our eyes are often focused on suffering and evil rather than focused on sanctification and glory. But if we keep our eyes on Jesus, we'll understand opposition more, but we stay over here because that is also a tactic of the enemy. And our expectation is off and it jacks with us. And it's because we think things are supposed to be perfect in our lives. Um, hello, which sort of makes sense because guess what you were designed for? Perfection. You weren't designed for 
sin and thorns and thistles and fallen angels. Like how are we supposed to defend against that, right? That's not how God has created us. But if we understand that opposition is coming because we live in a fallen world, then I believe that we'll not just be more likely to endure, but we'll realize maybe opposition is coming because I am actively advancing the kingdom of God. Like maybe it's not because of sin, though that could be true. That was the story here why they went into exile, right? But, but maybe also it's because I'm advancing the kingdom of God, which is the story we're in now. As they're trying to rebuild, all of a sudden opposition comes. Maybe you're facing the trials in your life specifically because you are trying to build Jesus's kingdom. Maybe that's why you feel the pressure of the enemy. If we had the right expectation though, I don't know if opposition would be as confusing. Listen, y'all, the Bible understands that in this life you will have trials. This is why there are more promises spoken about troubling times over and above almost any other promise that we see in the scripture, because God knows that opposition will come. Me and Amanda didn't connect at all with worship, and yet she's reading this passage about another story of opposition, the exact same sort of thing. Thorns and thistles, they will cut us up because of the fruit that we and those around us have chosen to eat. But it's not as confusing when we're not surprised by it. I'm not saying that opposition doesn't hurt. I'm just saying that it won't overcome if we understand what it's doing in our lives. But this is the second reason why the saints quit the work. Kind of already teased it ahead. We're focused on the opposition rather than focused on glory. And here's what made this text really, really confusing. Remember earlier I mentioned like a temple, the hiding behind Cyrus, the sharp responses that seemed against the prophets. Once again, maybe the right desire But do you realize what they stopped doing in this chapter? Do you see what you do not see clearly in chapters one through three is completely vacant and absent here? Throughout this whole chapter, there's no mention of prayer. Remember last week it kept saying, as it is written, as it is written, Uh, that's not here anymore. There's no pausing to stop and to seek God. Like like they were following the Bible before, but it seems not really here. They're just making up their own minds. And so we don't see prayer. We don't see the scriptures. We don't see sacrifices being offered. We don't see worship being given. We don't see any of this until chapter five once again. And so it seems that although maybe unintentional, they stopped consulting God. And guess what happened? A 16 year gap between chapter four and chapter five. They stopped the work of God. You have kings and priests and Levites and elders, and yet no one is found seeking the Lord here. Hmm. I wonder why they're so confused, right? Uh, Last week, we talked about how this is clearly paralleling the Exodus story and how this is like a new Exodus with a new Moses and a new, and you saw all the parallels. Well, do you remember what happened when they were in the promised land? They sent out 12 spies to go look at the promised land and those spies came back and they were like, yo, these people are way too big for us. We do not know how to overcome them. We look like grasshoppers to them. Only Joshua and Caleb were like, hold on, don't we serve Yahweh? Like, didn't we just see the seas split in part? Like, aren't we able, but 
the other spies stopped seeking God and guess what happened? There was a gap in the redemption of Israel and they wandered the desert for 40 years. These people now in the new Exodus have the exact same things happening. Rather than spying their land, they have spies inside of their land and rather than seeking God, they start making their own decisions and they pause, not just in the building process, but they pause in seeking God. And often opposition is confusing because we stop seeking God in the midst of it, y'all. We stop seeking God. And the moment you stop seeking the Lord is the moment that opposition confuses, overwhelms, and ultimately destroys you and foreigners and everyone around you. Gosh. Uh, can we just keep it real? Thanks for five of y'all. The rest of y'all hope it's the collective whole, right? Uh, what tends to be the first thing that goes when opposition comes into our lives? Our devotional time, right? Like all of a sudden there's a ton of pressure, we feel overwhelmed and all of a sudden we have a hard time even making it to church or even opening up our Bibles and we wonder why opposition starts to overwhelm our souls. We're not going to the God who can oversee them. It's so easy, y'all, to allow opposition to cause us to not seek the Lord and to just start acting on what we think is right versus hearing from God to move in what he thinks is right. And then all of a sudden we're wondering why we're deconstructing our faith or not constructing our faith in a way that is helpful. We stop seeking Yahweh. And here's the reality, y'all. All of us are confused at times. It's easy to read this story but notice, there's only two characters in this story. You're either the opposition, the adversary, trying to destroy the things of God, or you're Zerubbabel and the elders. You're confused. You're, you're, you're found kind of like, what is happening here? Those are the only two options. So pick your poison, right? And if we're on this side, if we're saying, yo, like we're just confused, like each of us tend to get confused in the midst of opposition. Each of us gets weary of enduring or we don't stop or we, or we don't stop to seek the Lord. There are traces of Zerubbabel in each of us. And so what do we do? What do we do? Well, I know a better leader who is also a type of king who began to rise up under kingship underneath another foreigner's rule about who this story is pointing us to, he is the better Zerubbabel. And I believe that if we keep our eyes on him, we will know how to endure. You see, this king I'm talking about did not give up. He endured opposition despite the pain, and that's who this story is pointing us toward. Like, you wanna talk about confusing? Clearly, Satan was against Jesus while he was on earth. Like opposition was at an all-time high when the Son of Man walked to the earth, was it not? We see demons popping out of people we ain't never seen before in the Bible, right? Like all of this uh, opposition is clear. Think about Jesus' life. At times, it kind of looked like the Pharisees, the religious leaders at the time, like they were right in their accusation against God. And so now we have the Pharisees that are opposing Jesus. We have the Gentiles that were rejecting Jesus. We have some of the Jews that were rejecting Jesus. We have some of Jesus's own disciples that were rejecting Jesus. Who wasn't opposed to Jesus to some extent? Clearly, Satan himself was against Jesus, as was all the enemies of darkness. Jesus faced all of the opposition in the heavenlies and all opposition on earth. Jesus understands what it is like to face opposition and to have confusion try to enter into his ministry. But saints, 
on the cross of Christ. Jesus did not face opposition just from Rome and from Judah, but he faced it from God himself. As Christ, who knew no sin, became sin on our behalf, the wrath of God, the opposition of God was poured out on Christ. Why? Because that's what you and I deserve. You think it's hard to have your flesh in opposition against you? You're supposed to have the God of the universe in opposition against you. For all of the ways that we have spurned and forsaken and practiced syncretism and not submitted to God and hurt God's plan and hurt God's people and hurt God's glory, God himself is supposed to be against us. And yet, God so loved the world that he took this opposition on himself. And Jesus rose from the dead, saints, meaning Jesus took on and then overcame the opposition of Rome and of the Jews and of Satan and of sinners and the opposition from us and even the opposition from God himself so that now we who should be crushed by Satan or crushed by the world or even crushed by God might now have his father as our father and we can now overcome the world because Jesus is the overcomer and in him we're more than overcomers. And if God is for us, then who can be against us? Like, think about the reality of what's happening here, y'all. Like, like, meaning, no matter what hell you face, if you are in Christ, he already defeated hell, you know that heaven is before you. What opposition can we not endure? Because he already endured it all for us. And so now you and I don't have to just muster up the strength. Like, ah, I'm facing opposition. Have a quiet time. Have a quiet time. Like, like, no, look to Jesus. At times we're trying to understand opposition and we take our eyes off of the king. Look to Jesus. He is the better. And he will begin to give you strength to overcome, to endure, to persevere until the end. So opposition does not have to be confusing. Opposition can be a worship moment because when it hits our lives, it can be a subtle reminder that maybe we're actually pushing back darkness and maybe this is an opportunity for me to reset my eyes on Jesus again. Opposition can be a gift. And so if we understand that, then maybe what God is doing as you face opposition, is he's trying to transform you into the glory of him who loves you. He's trying to work in your life. Now maybe we can reconcile with that friend because he's trying to make us like himself. Maybe we can share the gospel despite the shame that might come because he's trying to help us see there's a better kingdom ahead. Maybe opposition isn't as confusing. It is evidence that something is happening. We just need to not make this mistake that Zerubbabel made here and stop seeking. We need to keep our eyes on Christ in the process. So how do we apply this as we quickly close it up? Well, one, we talked about prayer every week. Y'all, like we need to be a praying church. Like please pray for yourself and for our church, y'all. As we rebuild, that's where the power of God is. And so even this week, as we think about this idea of opposition that is going to come in your life as you try to rebuild on Christ, and it will come in our church, y'all. Like, I believe that we're actually trying to push back darkness in this mug, right? Like, I look at our leaders, our CG shepherds, our, our team leads, some of the, the people that are sacrificing and serving. It's like, y'all actually love Jesus. So guess what's going to happen? Opposition. Opposition. 
But if we're praying and keeping our eyes on Jesus, we can endure it. And so pray simple prayers like, Lord, protect me from evil. Strengthen my hands. Help me to not be confused, but to endure the work when opposition arises. Pray for protection from evil. I would rather not endure that mug, <laughs> right? But if it comes, pray there's no confusion and pray for an enduring heart for yourself, for us as a church body. Secondly, y'all, I found that the way that I best endure opposition is by having really godly friends that remind me of truth. Do you know what made Israel start rebuilding again? It was that Haggai started prophesying. He was the good friend that came and said, yo, didn't God say to do this? Like, let's begin to do this again. And so even this week, like, I remember a specific conversation that happened, super, super subtle, but this one sentence was said that began to create confusion in my head and it just started to discourage me. Like, it started to kind of overwhelm me. And I was like, why is this little sentence feeling like a seed of poison in my life? But then I talked to one of my best friends, Rob Daniels, he's a pastor up in Dallas. And he just started walking me through, like, yo, dog, like, what are you preaching on this week? I was like, oh, oh, yeah, right? Like this felt opposition, it's like, it's an opportunity for me to put my eyes on Jesus. And he began to encourage me in truth. That's one of the best ways I know how to overcome opposition. And the temptation is not only to stop seeking God, but to run away from people when opposition comes. Don't do it, y'all. Like find godly community that will build your life in Christ. And finally, as we've been saying, don't be surprised when opposition comes. Don't be surprised when it comes. Friends, we may face opposition individually and collectively. It's spanned across four kings here. But take heart. You know the king of kings. Who cares how many kingdoms will come? They will all fall. And as we are keeping our eyes on Jesus, it may feel chaotic, but it doesn't have to feel confusing. And we can endure in the midst of us, and he will guide us even to more multiplication despite the opposition. And so you will see your life endure as you keep your eyes on Christ, and we will see that collectively as a church body, we will be about advancing the kingdom of God until Christ comes or takes all of us home while we are here, y'all, as we endure opposition. And so let us endure it for the glory of God. Amen. I love you guys like crazy. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, um, as I look out at some of these faces, I just think about the opposition that has tried to destroy their lives and not place their lives on you, to confuse and to, to subtly attack and to try to create division and to, to throw all this hostility like, like it is evident. And yet what I also see is a lot of people who have chosen to keep their eyes fixed on you. And as I watch over the months, over the years, of these people keeping their eyes locked on you, like I see the generational impact that we see here in the book of Ezra. The people are believing and following and loving you because of endurance. And so God, I pray endurance over this body. God, I pray that opposition would not overwhelm. God, I pray over friendships right now. I pray over marriages, the idea of division. I just believe it's so evident. God, would we call opposition what it is? It's an enemy. The person usually is not the enemy, like the enemy is. And I pray that we would be able to see what's happening and endure because of it.
God, I know that in a room this size, that there are people that may have been walking in that even were walking in feeling spiritual opposition. In fact, I know that for some of you, you may not even know where you stand with Jesus today. You may even feel some spiritual opposition, some confusion, some, as you try to figure out this God of the universe, like maybe there's truly an enemy that is trying to prevent you from seeing that God really loves you, that God wants relationship with you, that yes, opposition should be coming from him, but it's not Jesus took it on himself. And the gospel says that if you believe in Jesus, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, if you believe in your heart, then you will be saved. That you can enter into the family of God. This opposition that made you run away from Jesus, friends, like, like come back. The opposition wasn't Jesus, it was the enemy. Jesus wants you in the family of God. So maybe today you give your life to Christ for the first time or again. Jesus didn't promise that he would make your life easier, but he did promise that there would be eternal life and that no more tears would follow one day. Follow him today. And Christ, for all of us who have professed that faith in you, I pray we would, we would keep seeking you. Help us to endure until you come or until you take us home. We love you, King of the universe. We thank you for taking on sin, death, hell, Satan, the wrath of God, for taking it all on that we can have life in you. I pray that our eyes will be fixed on you, Jesus. Let us not stop the work like Zerubbabel because we miss, we miss. Help us to keep our eyes on you. Praise in your beautiful name, Jesus. Amen. Hey, everybody. Thanks so much for listening. If you want more information about us or how to get further connected, please visit our website, thewellaustin.com.